Welcome to the New Books Network. In his new book, Fertility and Faith, The Demographic Revolution and the Transformation of World Religions, Philip Jenkins maps the demographic revolution that has taken hold of many countries around the globe in recent decades and explores the implications for the future development of the world's religions. Demographic change has driven the secularization of contemporary Western Europe, where the revolution began. Jenkins shows how the European trajectory of rapid declines in fertility is now affecting much of the globe. The implications are clear. The religious character of many non-European areas is highly likely to move in the direction of sweeping secularization, and this is now reshaping the United States itself. This demographic revolution is reshaping Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, and Judaism. In order to accommodate the new social trends, these religions must adapt to situations where large families are no longer the norm. Each religious tradition will develop distinctive emphases concerning morality, gender, and sexuality, as well as the roles of clergy and laity in the faith's institutional structures. Philip Jenkins is Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University and Emeritus Edwin Earl Sparks Professor of Humanities with Penn State. He received his PhD in history from Cambridge and has published 29 books, which have been translated into 16 languages. The Economist magazine has called him, quote, one of America's best scholars of religion. Radical change follows great upheaval, and the tidal shift is well underway, Jenkins argues. In his new book, he describes this ongoing phenomenon and envisions our collective religious future, and he's going to tell us about it today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism, a channel on the New Books Network. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Philip Jenkins to talk about his book, Fertility and Faith, The Demographic Revolution and the Transformation of World Religions. Philip, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Well, uh, I've been working on aspects of uh, global Christianity, Christianity worldwide, for uh, a good many years. I uh, published a book called uh, The Next Christendom, which is about the spread of Christianity to uh, Africa, Asia, Latin America, which is you know one of the great uh, trends of our time. Um, I've been speaking a lot about that topic around the place through the years, and um, as I was uh, doing this, I came to be more interested in the uh, the demographic forces that uh, I, I thought were very important in uh, shaping religion, and which were increasingly marking off uh, some of the uh, older, more advanced economically countries from those uh, emerging nations, and which had uh, big um, religious consequences. And then just this past year, in 2020, uh, I wrote a book called um, Fertility and uh, Faith, which put together a lot of those arguments and a lot of those ideas. Right. That's what I was going to ask you next, is how this particular book came to take shape. Right. Um, as I said, it uh, it grew out of a lot of those um, <laughs> presentations. And what, what happened was I was spending so much time presenting the uh, the same um, structure of arguments again and again. And I thought, uh, boy, there, uh, there really is something uh, to this. And it was interesting. Once I uh, got going on the topic, um, I found it really spoke to uh, a lot of um, concerns uh, about religion worldwide and absolutely not just in the context of Christianity, uh, but in Islam and Buddhism, and also had a, um, a strong um, political dimension. And that's another aspect I've, I've worked on through the years. I've worked on uh, terrorism and uh, political violence. And uh, so the, the, the question I was always asking was, well, yeah, you're talking about faith, you're talking about fertility. What exactly is the uh, connection? And I, I, I sometimes say, not too seriously, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with the most important issue in the world. Uh, and I, uh, I wouldn't defend that precisely, but it's certainly one that is um, very important and underlies a lot of political and um, economic issues and, as I say, religious 
That's right. So you begin by point um, by drawing our attention to a couple of key facts, as you've mentioned. First, that fertility rates are sharply dropping out around the world. And second, that there's a strong correlation between the typical number of children that women of a particular society have and that society's overall religiosity. But you've observed that the connection between these facts is surprisingly overlooked, maybe because the relationship between them is really complex. It involves a lot of variables. So if you can, just explain to us what you're seeing here. Okay. I make a lot of use of what's called um, fertility rates, and the, uh, there are lots of ways of uh, measuring those, but one of the best is what's called the total fertility rate, which measures the um, number of uh, children that a woman is like to have uh, in the course of her reproductive uh, career. And there's a magic number there, which is uh, 2.1, which is a, a, a number I've used a lot through the years. Uh, if the fertility rate is 2.1, if the uh, average number uh, of children that a woman has is 2.1, then that means that you'll have a uh, demographically stable society. Uh, the population won't increase or uh, decrease much. It will jog along pretty much as it uh, as it has been. If it goes, uh, if it's way above that, if it's five or six or seven uh, children per woman, that's a high fertility society. And that's what we call the classic um, third world rate. Uh, in fairly modern times, however, an, a growing number of societies move to very low rates, 1.6, 1.5, even lower, 1.1. And that's called sub-replacement fertility. And the, the argument is, uh, if the rate carries on like that, then the population over time is going to contract it's going to shrink, and the population is going to get older and older. You run out of people to uh, do the jobs and uh, pay the taxes. And of course, societies are not just going to um, fade away. Uh, they solve that problem by uh, immigration, and they bring in younger, and more fertile people from um, around the world. That fertility issue is reasonably uh, well-known but its consequences just run through so many uh, things. For instance, if you have a very low fertility rate uh, society, it is uh, more stable. It's very low on young uh, adults. Um, that means it's likely to be a more orderly, stable uh, society. And my argument is that uh, all this correlates very closely to um, religion. And a famous example would be uh, some of the countries of Scandinavia, like uh, Denmark or Sweden, where this trend first appeared, in, mainly in the 1960s, very low fertility, very secular societies. Uh, at that time, people looked at those societies and thought, well, gee, this is Scandinavian, it's Protestant. And over time, it spread and spread and spread, and that low fertility low faith model quite rapidly spread across the whole of Europe and beyond. At the same time, as we'll talk about, you also have uh, societies that remain high fertility and high faith. And uh, so those, those are the basic models. We can talk exactly about why that should be, why fertility and faith follow each other. The correlation is very strong. We can argue about the exact uh, causation. Right. And as you point out, um, there's often fears around this perception of dramatic population change. Um, And these kinds of fears uh, have been around for a long time. They're not new. And sometimes it's led to hyperbolic dramatization, whether that be in scholarship or even science fiction stories, which is kind of fun. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Okay, well, um, there are. Uh, th- this goes in waves. Uh, not necessarily very logical. It's very, uh, very emotional, uh, and it can have really horrible, in many ways, political consequences. Yeah, in the early twentieth century, uh, many European countries were convinced that they had this outrageous high fertility, uh, growing population, and they had to take land. Uh, in order to accommodate it. Uh, And, you know, the famous uh, phrase in Germany, um, they use this idea of Lebensraum, 
that is enough space where all these millions and millions of future Germans can live. And we're going to take them in uh, Eastern Europe. Other countries tried to build up overseas uh, empires. Uh, in the 1960s, we got a phrase that was uh, still very, still quite common, the idea of a population explosion, um, the idea that uh, there was high fertility in the global south. Europe had much lower fertility at that point. And we get the idea of um, a very overtly racial idea of swamping, that a white world is going to be overrun by a populous non-white world from Africa or India or um, South America. And that uh, is still a big idea on the far right. Uh, when there was a, um, a, a racist massacre uh, in New Zealand a couple of years ago, if you look at the uh, manifesto that the shooter left, it's all about demography and birth rates and the white world being uh, uh, being wiped out. On a more uh, slightly, slightly cheerful note, um, at that time in the 1960s and 70s, many people wrote science fiction books about um, the population explosion. And some of them are famous. There's one uh, with the interesting title of Make Room, Make Room. And that became the film uh, Soylent Green about a crazy overpopulated uh, America uh, reduced to third world living standards. And I'm very conscious that there's a racial agenda in that idea of, uh, of the third world. Um, and images of uh, future overpopulation crisis were very common. They were in these stories. They're very strong. 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. And then people realized, oh, uh, guess what? The, uh, the fertility rates are kind of going into reverse. And then they started publishing uh, stories about not enough children. So the moral is don't expect too much by way of, um, of logic here. But I do come back to this uh, point. So much of the literature about population and overpopulation has a fairly overt uh, racial uh, angle to it. And it's about a white world being um, being swamped. And some of those stories have got a very nasty uh, edge uh, to them. Yeah, I was really glad that you brought those up because um, I'm interested in science fiction myself. And so I've, I've run into that um, almost subgenre of, uh, of narratives that are concerned about this kind of population thing. And I, I would agree with you that it does seem to be really irrational and fear-oriented. Another um, sort of similar example I've seen lately is these articles that complain that millennials are not having enough children. They're not getting married. They're not having enough sex. They're not having enough children. And there's this hand-wringing over it, which just strikes me as so odd, having grown up in a period a few decades ago, where the hand wringing was about young people having too much sex, right? And it just seems like there's, it's just always, somebody's wringing their hands and being afraid and things aren't going right. But it just right. seems like it takes so little to have it quickly shift the, in the other direction. And, you know, I, I would add some of the books that come out of that uh, genre uh, back in the 1970s, there's one of the most influential books of the era by a, a French author called Jean Raspail, uh, called The Camp of the Saints, which literally is about the, um, the non-white invasion of a depopulated white Europe. And that today is the Bible of the, um, uh, uh, of the far right. And uh, very often, if you look at the people who go and, uh, you know, carry out a racist massacre, you know they've read this book and they will, um, uh, they will refer to it. Now, you don't want to extend that to regular science fiction authors, the John Brunners, the Harry Harrisons. Uh, but this is a topic you have to be very, uh, very cautious about in a lot of ways. I agree. So you begin with Europe because... Um, you argue that that's kind of a bellwether. There, there were sharp declines in fertility in Europe in the mid-20th century, and then there was an associated transformation of their religious faith and practice. And these seem to be a bellwether for the coming global demographic revolution. But it took some time for the larger picture to be perceived. So is that right? 
Yeah, very much so. Uh, as I said, it begins in uh, Scandinavia, it begins in uh, ne uh, the Netherlands, and it comes right at the end of the uh, the baby boom. And you can date it, you know, pretty exactly, uh, 1963, four, five. Um, that that is the end of the baby boom, and uh, th there is a really dramatic shift in uh, in population at the time. People say, well, this is all to do with uh, Protestantism. It's a Protestant revolution. And then in the 1970s and 80s, um, it uh, hits the Catholic countries very strongly, uh, Italy, Spain. Um, and those countries quite quickly uh, start hitting fertility rates that are historically and amazingly low. And I said 2.1 is the magic number for replacement. Spain and Italy are going to 1.1, 1.2 to levels that have never really been seen in human history. And there are areas of uh, Germany, for example, which are hitting 0.8. Uh, and people are using phrases like um, uh, auto-genocide. Uh, and the idea is uh, that uh, people are wiping out these uh, uh, these nations simply by, uh, by lack of children. Well, you can argue about that any which way, um, but in exactly precisely the same years, these same countries um, start becoming much more secular. Now, I'll talk more about what I mean by secular, but um, institutional religion goes into freefall. Um, Scandinavia, it's, uh, yeah, you know, very famous uh, for being a, a very secular area, the Netherlands, and that's all reflected in uh, very uh, liberal, social, sexual legislation. And other countries look at this and say, oh, my Lord, that's terrible. That'll never happen to us. And then it happens to them. Um, and in countries like uh, Italy and Spain, you start getting extremely liberal legislation often carried by uh, popular referenda on issues like, well, first of all, contraception, then uh, divorce, abortion. And by the end of the century, you're getting into really quite daring cutting edge issues like um, assisted suicide, same-sex marriage, um, and topics that, of course, the churches are ferociously uh, opposed to but nobody's listening to them uh, anymore. And countries like the Protestant Netherlands and Catholic Belgium end up with some of the most liberal social and sexual legislation uh, anywhere. And that then spreads through uh, much of the continent. Not all. There, there are certainly exceptions. Um, so the, the two travel together. I'm stressing this is about correlation you know where you find a you find b and we can talk exactly about what the cor uh, what the causation is but i'm saying that the two travel together to the point that if you look at the society and tell me its uh, fertility rate i can make a pretty good guess about what its laws are on abortion or same-sex marriage uh and so that really does become very uh, very predictable so we're looking at a kind of what is seen at the time as a European revolution, which, as we'll discuss, then becomes a global revolution. So can we go further into detail about the consequences of the sharply dropping fertility rates, uh, aside from the um, fr from this correlative trend sure. about the decline in religiosity, um, like stuff about ch changing social attitudes, population diversity, things like that? Sure. So many things. Uh, as I say, uh, when you get into this fertility issue, this demographic issue, uh, you, you honestly don't know, <laughs> don't know where to stop um, because it underlies so many things. And, you know, if you're running a, uh, a business, if you're running public services or schools, then it radically affects everything that you, um, you, you think you should be, uh, should be doing. What does it mean? It means that there are likely to be uh, far fewer nuclear families. There are going to be more uh, single, um, single people not dependent on those families. You're going to get more um, older, uh, isolated uh, people. So you have a kind of breakup of those traditional uh, families um, for better or worse. 
one thing I argue is that as children become scarcer in a society, that opens the way to more of a rhetoric of child protection and to an awareness of issues of child abuse, uh, which really hits at the end of the 1970s, initially in countries like uh, Britain, and then spreads, uh, spreads very widely. So there are a lot of uh, implications there. Uh, it, uh, uh, but perhaps the most, well, one of the most important things is that in order to keep societies going without young uh, people, um, you, a country has to permit um, immigration and um, encourage uh, 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 immigration. And at least for the first generation or two that uh, after they arrive, new immigrants in Germany or France or Britain are going to have much higher fertility rates. And we come back to this idea of, um, of race and uh, stereotyping, that these migrants are going to uh, swamp white uh, Europe, that there's this very strong uh, racial, uh, racial rhetoric, um, all of which is, um, is rooted in, uh, uh, in demographics. And so the uh, uh, the immigration, and as I said, uh, in some ways it's uh, it's a different religious tradition uh, in the context of Islam. Not necessarily because many of the immigrants are uh, are Christian, uh, but the racial religious transformations associated with uh, immigration are all rooted in that um, in that fertility uh, shift. Sometimes it's overt, sometimes not, but. Um, Look, for instance, one example I cite is the uh, the Brexit campaign, the Brexit vote in um, in Britain, and you look at the uh, age structures, uh, race structures, the demographic background of the uh, uh, of the votes in um, um, in that uh, fertility drives um, drives an awful lot. So, as as I say, apart from affecting. Um, uh, children, old people, young people, and families, uh, the fertility shift really has no impact at all. Uh, it, it, it offers a pretty uh, comprehensive um, uh, transformation. Hmm. So if we go back to thinking about the religious consequences in particular, um, maybe let's try to delve into what kind of causal relationship right. you may have been able to find between the dropping fertility rates and the loss of religiosity. Sure. I think what happens is you can find a pattern of influence from one to the other, from A to B or from B to A, but the point is they both work together and there is a feedback uh, relationship. To give you an example, uh, underlying so much of this is uh, the changing role of women. Uh, women going into uh, employment, women going into um, higher education. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's very hard for us today to realize in, um, in Europe in the 1940s and 50s, for example, not just the social, but the legal constraints that existed on married women continuing to be employed, and certainly in um, serious, uh, serious professional jobs. There was, uh, if you like, a social uh, campaign to keep them out of that. But by the, by the 1960s, when women do enter the workforce uh, uh, much, uh, uh, much more, that's when, uh, you know, it's very, very hard for um, an employed professional woman to have five or six or seven children. Is it possible? Yes, but it's, uh, it's usually uh, 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 unlikely. So you get a, uh, a decline in fertility. You get a decline in, um, in family size. Think that through. Think of how much... Loyalty to religious institutions depends on children and families. Why are you a member of this religious institution? Because all the other families in the neighborhood are. Because the kids go to the uh, church school. Because the kids go to the church or whatever institution for religious training. 
for confirmation classes, for First Communion classes, now take children out of the picture and it seriously reduces the link of many families to the church, to the, uh, uh, to the institution. Not entirely, but you are also living in a world where the linkage between sexuality and reproduction uh, is significantly reduced. The contraceptive pill starts becoming very freely uh, available from about 1962, 60, uh, 63. Um, and it is uh, tougher for churches to convince people that the old restrictions on um, reproductive rights can and should be maintained. If you separate sexuality from reproduction, homosexuality uh, looks a lot more um, more acceptable, or the laws against it uh, seem more um, uh, seem more tainted. And uh, you, for instance, you got a great culture clash in the Catholic Church in 1968 when the uh, Pope issues this decree against artificial forms of uh, contraception, creates a lot of um, uh, discontent among Catholics, many of, which re uh, many of whom resolve it by simply saying, I'm not going to observe this. Uh, I'm not going to follow uh, these restraints. Once you have rejected the church, once you have rejected what the Pope says on that key issue, uh, what else are you going to refuse to follow the church on? Um, divorce, contraception, abortion, and Catholic countries uh, start being much more willing to reject what the church says on these things. Ireland, by the way, is an absolutely um, prime, uh, prime example. Now, the, you, you can point to other uh, factors. You could say, for example, that as society becomes more secular, so the dynamic requiring families to have children, to have lots of children, also declines. So A influences B, which influences A, uh, and so on. It's very hard to know exactly what the chain is because these things happen so rapidly. Uh, but Europe, demographically, culturally, religiously, is an absolutely different place in 1983 from what it had been in 1963. It is a very rapid transformation. And if you want to use the word revolution, I think it's a legitimate word. Hmm. I have to admit, when I was reading this section, it reminded me of how the religious right in the United States, for example, is a champion of one of their favorite phrases, family values. And this has always stuck in my craw a little bit because it seems like such a a bizarre abstraction because who on earth is against the family? You know what I mean? There's nobody out there that is championing against mothers and kids or something like this. And so it, to me, it's always sort of um, alluded to this manipulation underneath. And when I was reading this section um, by you, it was striking me that in a lot of ways, um, reinforcing the family is in a, in a lot of ways, solidifying religious transmission. So it's exactly. about, yeah, it's about enforcing that transmission, that indoctrinization. Wow. Right. I, and, you know, so much of uh, uh, the, that family's, family values uh, uh, argument, as you say, um, is about uh, tradition. It's about uh, uh, transmission and, you know, uh, which has its, uh, uh, it's good and um, uh, and desirable side, but uh, there are all these uh, agendas. And as we said earlier, some of the uh, uh, critiques of these changes also get into some very uh, suspicious uh, areas of uh, very reactionary and racial uh, uh, racial policies. So. Uh, uh, um, how society uh, changes. Yeah, and as you say, who's against the family? I'm thinking of starting a new political party opposed to motherhood. I'm not yeah. uh, hoping to get <laughs> too many uh, followers. Yeah, exactly. Um, so next, though, you take some time to clarify the important difference between the role and influence of religion in the institutional sphere right. versus the intellectual sphere, uh, especially in terms of tracing the movement towards secularization. So can you tell us what you mean here? Sure. 
People often talk about uh, secularization uh, as if it is identical with um, an abandonment of, uh, uh, of religion, as if it's uh, uh, synonymous with uh, atheism. Uh, that is certainly one option. Uh, but it is um, much more common that people abandon religious practice, um, that, uh, but they maintain spiritual or religious um, ideas. There's a first-class British uh, scholar called Grace Davy who uh, uh, coined the phrase, uh, uh, believing without belonging. And for me, secularization is about abandoning belonging without necessarily doing anything about believing. And I would argue that in Europe, you get good evidence for this uh, as membership of churches, attendance of churches collapses. People are far less willing to become uh, priests or nuns or, uh, or monks, but they go on pilgrimages in phenomenal numbers. And I would argue that in the early 21st century, uh, Europe is actually living in a golden age of, um, of pilgrimage, far more so than it was in the supposed age of faith in the 1950s, uh, because that is a non-hierarchical, non-institutional way of pursuing uh, spiritual old desires and, uh, uh, and interests. And we certainly see that in, um, in other parts of the world. So the real crisis of this kind of secularization um, affects attitudes to hierarchy, institutions, having people tell you uh, what to do. If you have something very uh, decentralized, people are very prepared to go off and uh, uh, go off and do it. So it's appropriate for a more uh, atomized um, society and uh, a less authority-oriented um, society. And that has all sorts of other uh, implications, which we can which we can talk about. But one thing I argue is that the uh, decline of support for uh, hierarchy and institutions helps explain the enormous upsurge in uh, clergy abuse cases. It's not so much that clergy abuse scandals drive people away from the church. It's the people have already moved away from the church and they are more prepared than they were before to believe scandalous stories about the uh, clergy. But uh, so I, one of my arguments is that uh, as fertility rates fall, um, scandals affecting the clergy or religious institutions are extremely likely to break out, to be believed and to uh, be seen as extremely severe. Right. Well, let's broaden your findings now from Europe and then compare them to what you see happening in other areas around the globe. Tell us what you found here. Well, as I said, in the 1960s, 1970s, people used to believe that uh, this was a European phenomenon and it needn't trouble the rest of the world. In the last quarter of the last century, uh, the European revolution, low fertility and low faith, became not quite global, but almost. Where it particularly hit was in some of the extremely uh, prosperous areas around the uh, Pacific Rim, where fertility collapsed in a very short period from uh, six or seven children per woman to one or even below in countries like uh, Taiwan and uh, uh, South Korea, uh, Japan, is the other great, uh, great example. And also in areas like Latin America, back in the old population explosion days of the 1960s, people used to point at countries like Brazil and Mexico and see these, you know, hundreds of millions of uh, new people uh, being born. And then they stopped being born. And uh, countries like uh, Mexico and Brazil and Argentina uh, became extremely European. If you go to a country like uh, uh, Uruguay, for example, it actually has a completely Scandinavian um, age profile and demographic profile. And guess what? It's the most uh, secular country in um, Latin America. And there are any number of examples uh, of this, but you know, I'll, I'll talk to people 
about this fertility issue, and they still have this vision of India and uh, countries having these third world fertility rates. And then you tell them, um, you are aware that uh, half the states in India have got fertility rates uh, that are equivalent to Denmark. And that's, you know, a surprising fact. And even the, quote, high fertility states in India are still way, way below what they were just 20, uh, 20 years ago. The, the prime example that strikes me, uh, many Europeans, I think many Americans also, have this vision of Islam being associated with extremely high numbers, Muslims going to swamp the rest of the world, and so on and so on. And then you tell them about uh, one particular very important country where back in the 1980s, the typical woman had seven or more children. And right now that number is a very sub-Danish 1.6. What country is that? Iran. Iran has had one of the steepest falls in fertility of any country in, uh, in recorded history. Uh, there are other countries that are moving in the same direction, not quite as rapidly. Um, interestingly, the uh, sharpest fall in the uh, North African world was Tunisia. I've argued that uh, low uh, fertility is associated with a greater sense of uh, individual rights, um, a little bit more secularism. And you think, where did the Arab Spring break out in 2011? Why? Uh, Tunisia. So um, we're dealing with a not quite global revolution one that is affecting East Asia, parts of South Asia, much of Latin America, and there are other areas where it hasn't hit yet, but, um, and th this is reflected in so many different things, uh, age structures, for example, low fertility societies tend to be old uh, societies. Back in the 1960s, the median age in Latin America was 19, which is unimaginable. By 2005, it was uh, 25, and right now it's up to about 32. It's not up to European levels yet, but that is an incredible transformation in a very short time. And as I say, it's reflected in uh, secularization, a, drift, a shift away from religious institutions. Uh, I won't go into any number of uh, details, but um, I've talked a lot about Christianity. Buddhism is in deep crisis in some of what have been its great fortresses in countries like uh, South Korea, uh, in countries like Thailand. Uh, you've had dramatic clerical scandals uh, in those countries. And the other measure that I like to use across East Asia uh, and uh, Southeast Asia, Latin America, is that of people who, when they're asked, say, no, I have no religion. That is, they're what we call nuns, N-O-N-E, nuns, uh, by far the fastest growing religious group in South Korea is nuns, people who, have, who admit to having no religious affiliation. Doesn't mean they're atheists but it means they don't affiliate to any uh, religion. If you look at the growth of the nuns, those secular-oriented populations, and draw the graph next to the fertility rates, they match extremely well. As you move towards a low-fertility society, you move towards a low-faith society. So this brings us to uh, the million dollar question, and that's what about the United States? Because as you point out, that one seems to be a bit of an anomaly, uh, at least for a number of decades. Um, it seemed to have uh, lower birth rates, but higher levels of fertility. So, um, but it, maybe this is changing, you're suggesting? So tell us what's going on in America. Right up until very recent times, right up until about 2005, 2010, and, you know, I mean recent, um, it was very common for people to talk about religion around the world and fertility around the world. And what they'd say is, okay, Europe is a very advanced society, very educated uh, society, has low fertility, low religion. Okay. 
then you have areas in uh, Africa which are very high fertility, very high faith. But the United States is this very strange society which is an advanced, educated, progressive society with quite high fertility, and it's very, very religious. How very strange this is. And things changed quite rapidly then, round about uh, 2010. Uh, you, you really get the uh, figures showing up. And uh, in 2010, you st uh, American fertility rates started declining very sharply, and uh, until last year, they were down to Scandinavian rates, round about 1.7. And interestingly, it's round about that uh, stage of 2010 that all the religious measures start to go into reverse. And the key one is that of the, uh, the nuns. Now, American atheists have always been a very uh, small phenomenon. The numbers uh, might actually be lower than they were in the mid-19th century. But people who say they have no religion, that number has grown very steadily from the start of the 21st century. The, uh, the graph moves dramatically upwards after uh, 2010. And right now, the United States has got three main religious groups. It has evangelicals, it has Catholics, and it has nuns. And right now, as of 2020, the nuns outnumber the Catholics. They are round about the same number as the evangelicals. But the direction is that within the next uh, decade, if things go anything like they're going at the moment, um, the nuns will have it. And uh, the alarming uh, figure for statement for some of us is if you're asked what the future is of American institutional religion, some people would say the answer is, well, none. Uh, okay, that, that, that is too um, pessimistic, but it is a real change. And what's striking is in a very short time. So what happened here? And I think the most important phenomenon was the economic crash of 2007-2008. Up until that point, America had been an exceedingly welcoming country for immigrants, uh, for aspiring ethnic groups who wanted to build their own houses, buy their own houses, set up families, and families like that tended to be very closely tied to churches. 2008 kicked the foundations out from those people and that is where family formation slows, uh, the creation of the, this very kind of prosperous, aspiring society slows, and institutional religion goes with it. And significantly, that is the point at which uh, religious affiliation slows dramatically among Latinos, who are increasingly such a, a large portion of the, uh, of the U.S. population. Uh, you are getting a growing number of Latino nuns. So I, I think when people write the history of the 2010s in the United States, they're going to focus on that uh, transition. And what I would dearly love to know is whether the new crash, or whatever we want to call it, the phenomenon of this horrible year of 2020, will repeat that and further drive that kind of secularizing uh, trend. Um, it might be that 2008 and 2020 um, will be two landmarks in the, the move towards low fertility, uh, uh, low faith. I'm way beyond the evidence when I uh, say that about 2020, um, but something dramatic is happening out there and I would dearly like to know what the impact is going to be over an extended period, like the next decade or so. But the, the bottom line to answer your, to your question, people always used to believe the United States was a very distinctive society, very non-European. It is looking much more European uh, by the day, uh, and even more so in particular states. By the way, it's also very neatly uh, political. Um, the lower the fertility, the bluer the state.
and it's a it's a very neat correlation. Hmm. It's a really interesting idea to think about some historian in the future writing about how not only was 2020 so devastating in economic terms, but that it might have um, religious ramifications as well. What an unusual thought. I, I, it, it can't fail uh, to. And in fact, the, uh, the, the, the analogy that I use uh, in the book is one of the um, fastest and most dramatic examples of secularization ever recorded, uh, which is what happens in the uh, province of Quebec uh, from the early 60s through the mid-70s, where one of the most ferociously and conservative Catholic uh, territories in the world basically secularizes in a very short time. Uh, all stock populations uh, secularize, and where the uh, the churches and above all the Catholic Church um, move over to an almost total reliance on um, francophone uh, immigrants, on Haitians and Africans and uh, Vietnamese. I, in fact, I wondered if uh, I hadn't really put two and two together before, but I'm located in Quebec and I'm familiar with the uh, the quiet revolution that turned the society very suddenly secular, as you say. And, and here the, the podcast, New Books and Secularism, finds its home base here. <laughs> I wondered if that struck you when I first got in contact. Yeah, with you. I, it's, it, it's a very warning. Uh, it's a very warning sign. But well, let's move on to Africa. Uh, let's look at how different rates of demographic change and their attendant changes in rates of religiosity have led to social unrest and even violence among religions. So we're kind of turning our attention to a different consequence, maybe, of um, dropping fertility rates. Um, yeah, So, and you begin this explanation or th- this examination of this correlation with Africa. So what's happening here? Okay. I mentioned that this European revolution is a uh, almost a global thing, but not uh, entirely. And the great exception is uh, Africa. Most African countries carry on and still carry on having what you might call classic third world population profiles with uh, fertility rates of um, four, five, six uh, total fertility. The, uh, so what are the consequences there? The growth of population continues to be um, phenomenal. Um, the uh, age profile of the population continues to be extraordinarily uh, young. Um, I, I think I'm right in saying, for instance, the median age of Africa as a continent back in the 1960s, it's 19. Today, it's about oh, 20. In other words, it's scarcely changed, uh, scarcely moved. You certainly get some shift, but nothing, uh, uh, nothing like so much. And going together with that, uh, you have extraordinarily high uh, rates of religious uh, affiliation, uh, religious belief, religious uh, inst- uh, institutions. Uh, if the whole world fit that model then that would be an interesting fact. But what isn't happening is that Africa precisely is the holdout, which means that African patterns and African religions increasingly become the global center. If religions are failing in uh, Europe or uh, North America, don't worry because those denominations, those churches are booming in Africa and achieving astonishing uh, numerical proportions. And even if a demographic revolution, a fertility transition hit Africa tomorrow, then we still have all those young people around right now um, who will shape things through the uh, middle of the uh, the century. Uh, By 2050, there are probably going to be about 2.2 billion Uh, Africans. By that point, Africa will be by far the most Christian uh, continent of the over a billion Christians in Africa, which is up from 10 million back in 1900. Uh, uh, Islam is booming in Africa. And in addition, um, those patterns spread around the world through migration. If North African Arab populations decline due to fertility transition, don't worry. 
Europe can still import uh, people from black sub-Saharan um, Africa. So what is African today becomes European and North American tomorrow in terms of a Christianity and, um, and Islam. I'd, I'd also like to uh, mention one, pick up one thing you mentioned. You talked about kind of conflict and instability. We're very familiar with the idea of uh, violence between, particularly between Christians and Muslims in Africa, and you might enter a competition as to you know which is the cause, which is the really uh, violent religion here. And you can certainly point to religious extremism uh, in countries like Nigeria, but. The key variable, again, is one of fertility and the age profile of the population. If you have a very high birth rate, it means you have what's called a youth bulge in the population. Very high numbers of the population, 20-25%, aged 15 to 24. The average age, excuse me, the median age of the population might be 20-21. If you have a society like that, countries can't afford to give them jobs. They can't afford to pay them um, uh, welfare, take care of their health. Those people are going to be easy recruits for religious extremism. And once again, if you tell me the um, fertility rate of a country, I'll tell you how influenced it is by private religious militias. Uh, I'll tell you when their last act of attempted genocide was. And uh, so much of the conflict has those uh, demographic roots. And in a sense, you're dealing with an inverse of Europe where the uh, very high fertility is reflected in uh, very hostile attitudes to, for instance, homosexuality, uh, same-sex marriage, and liberal sexual and social uh, policies. Please understand, I'm not trying to make the fertility, the demographic thing, one size fits all. Um, those numbers aren't everything, but they're not nothing. Uh, th that they are important in shaping social, social policies, social attitudes, and political outcomes. So other regions that people of the West often associate with political unrest and violence are the predominantly Muslim countries. But as you point out, this is an inaccurate stereotype. And you argue that, again, fertility rates are better predictors of volatility than religious affiliation. So tell us about your evidence for this. Right. Um, well, I use the example of Iran, for example. Uh, now, Iran's a very interesting uh, uh, case study. In 1979, you had an extremely uh, uh, young population, a youth bulge population. You had all these uh, millions of people you could pour out onto the streets and uh, demonstrate against the uh, Shah and uh, uh, overthrow the uh, uh, Shah of Iran. Um, in recent times, the government has been extremely unpopular there, but you just don't have all the young people to go out and demonstrate and form militias and uh, rebel um, against the government. Iran's an interesting um, example. So the elite, the government, is extremely uh, religious and fanatical and, uh, and fundamentalist. But the evidence of uh, secular trends in Iran is very striking. The, uh, the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard some years ago made an amazing statement that uh, the country had about 60,000 uh, mosques, of which about 3,000 were, uh, were ever used, um, even uh, at times of the great uh, festivals and, uh, and holy days. Um, it's very, it would be impossible for somebody to come out and say they are very uh, secular because the government is, uh, uh, is against it. But if the government liberalized, I think Iran would politically and socially and religiously look a lot more like Denmark, that it would look a lot more secular uh, in, uh, in its attitudes. It's uh, interesting, again, if you look at the countries that are the uh, highest fertility uh, in the world, 
Well, some of the examples would be uh, countries like um, Iraq and um, Afghanistan and the uh, Palestinian uh, territories. And without referring to the uh, you know, political background in any of those societies, that demography means that you have all these young people, especially young men, who are ready to be mobilized for, uh, for religious uh, campaigns. Uh, you have weak and failing states and governments take over the roles um, that uh, should, would be assigned to them in the West. Uh, it's the mosques that, uh, uh, that take over. And th that's, a, uh, that's a vicious uh, uh, circle. As long as there isn't an economy, you can't have an economy that's going to employ women and uh, stop them from having very large numbers of children. Uh, so you have that youth bulge and youth bulge societies. Um, I, I certainly don't reject the idea that, uh, you know, you can have extremely fanatical uh, Islamic organizations, no question at all. Um, but if they don't have the demographic material to work with, they can't get very far. And what's so wonderful for them in a country like Iraq is they have that uh, uh, demographic war material with which to uh, unleash chaos. And increasingly, Syria has developed a very similar pattern. Hmm. So staying in a similar vein, um, next you look at instances in which populist governments exploit the inherent volatility of highly fertile and highly religious people uh, for cynical political ends. So where are you seeing this and how does it work? I've talked about a fertility shift, um, but... It's not true that a country kind of goes overnight from being a high fertility society to a low fertility society, and uh, uh, often it's extremely uneven. So often, and the example I would use, for example, is uh, Turkey, uh, you will have some regions that are extremely Western, European, low fertility, not particularly religious. But in the same country, you have extremely high fertility, very religious uh, communities, you know, America thinks of the Bible Belt. This is the Koran Belt. If you are a, uh, a president or a member of a government, um, who do you turn to? Do you turn to these uh, educated, secular uh, Western people or to the very high fertility, high faith people? And the question is, in a sense, a no-brainer. Uh, you go to the people with the votes. You go to the people who can turn out the, uh, the party militias. Um, and the example I would choose, uh, for example, would be uh, uh, Erdogan in, uh, in Turkey, um, but uh, who, who presents this very um, idealized model of Islam, of Islamic history, of uh, Ottoman history. And you look at his voting support, and it is overwhelmingly in pro uh, provinces that are high faith, uh, high fertility. Uh, there's a complicated factor there with the Kurdish people, but very heavily, if you look at the fertility rates, they're a pretty good predictor of uh, political action. That's also true of other countries. Uh, one of the examples I would choose is, the, uh, is India, which, as I said, is very sharply divided uh, between countries with, uh, excuse me, uh, states with high fertility rates very religious in that context, very uh, uh, Hindu, and uh, uh, open to manipulation by very religious parties and, uh, and militias. And then you have the uh, other low fertility, better educated, low, uh, low faith uh, states, uh, particularly in the, uh, uh, in the South. Um, the government... And, uh, uh, Narendra Modi uh, uses this ideology of um, uh, Hindutva, this uh, glorification of the Hindu past, of uh, Hindu uh, religion. And who he is speaking to is the, um, the high fertility, um, high fertility uh, uh, communities. Uh, I, I can talk about that at uh, uh, great length, but uh, I, I think it makes the, uh, the point. And um, the Hindu religion then is associated also with Hindi language. Uh, the states that are high, fer uh, high fertility tend to be 
very devoutly Hindu. They tend to be Hindi, unlike so many of the minority religions that you get in other areas, which might be more uh, Christian or uh, Sikh or, uh, or other, uh, other faiths. And the third example I would choose, and I, uh, I, say I won't attempt to go on at length here, is, uh, is Israel under uh, Netanyahu. Uh, Judaism, very sharply divided between extremely high fertility Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox, uh, and very low fertility, more secular um, uh, populations. Once again, if you have that as a division, uh, which audience, which electorate do you attempt to speak to? Again, it's a no-brainer. You talk to the people with all the votes who in the next generation are going to have all the votes. And in Israel, probably by 2050, the Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox are going to be an overall majority uh, of, the, uh, of the country. That has huge political and cultural and international uh, con uh, consequences. But again, if you don't pay attention to the demography and the demographic basis of religion, um, then you, uh, you, you miss the heart of the matter, the, the main point of the story. So how well do you think your research can be turned towards speculation for the future? Do you think uh, you see these trends in declining fertility and religiosity just continuing in the way that we're seeing right now? I'm, uh, I'm never hostile to uh, 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 ration pointless speculation, uh, but in these cases, you can, you can make uh, reasonable um, projections. What is likely, I think, is that some of the more extreme population collapses were reversed somewhat. Uh, so countries that did drop to 1.1, 1.2 will be back to 1.7, but that is still far below uh, replacement. And I think that's increasingly going to become a, um, a global uh, norm. Eventually, a few decades down the road uh, in, uh, in Africa, but the uh, impact over those few decades will be a, a much more, um, I suppose, African world in terms of, um, of raw numbers and particularly in terms of religion. The, if you assume that that is the case, if you assume that those are the directions, then the question arises, what do religions, any religion, do to respond to this? Uh, I suppose you could tell them to go out and tell their uh, believers to go forth and multiply. It's a reasonable bet that those believers will not do so. Uh, so how do you uh, respond? And uh, one thing is to find what those particular low fertility populations want and do not want in institutions. They clearly want forms of spirituality. Um, they want practical forms of care for an aging and isolated and lonely uh, and atomized uh, society, which churches and mosques and temples are uniquely well uh, able to, uh, uh, to supply. Um, but uh, th these are things that they, uh, th th they need to, uh, to be thinking about now, because this is not a revolution for the far future. This is a revolution that has happened, is happening, and will will continue to uh, uh, to happen. Um, you then have to say, well, you know, what will the, uh, the the next areas to be most affected be? And I find it interesting that some of the sharpest fertility rates uh, fall, uh, sharpest falls in fertility rates, are happening in very very surprising countries like Saudi Arabia. Is it really the case that a country like Saudi Arabia is set for a degree of secularization? What would that mean for the nature of Islam, for divisions within um, Islam? After 9-11, uh, policymakers realized they had to integrate religion into their planning, and they still absolutely do. But they need to think very hard uh, about uh, demography and fertility also. Hmm. 
Well, Philip, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for coming to, uh, onto the show. This is such fascinating, fascinating work, um, providing an angle of approach that, that frankly, I have never uh, thought of before. Uh, but before we go, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Oh, yes, I've taken a much more uh, modest project. Uh, I'm writing a, uh, a history of religion as it has been shaped and reshaped by climate and climate uh, catastrophes. Uh, so my book is called Climate, Catastrophe and uh, Faith. And this looks at the way that Christianity and Islam and other religions have been shaped by uh, climatic disasters and change, mainly since the Middle Ages. And again, there's an element of projection there. So it's a, it's a very modest, limited topic. <laughs> yeah, my goodness, that that's another interesting way of, of sort of uh, trying to part the fog and see into the future. Um, well, again, thank you so much for being on this show. Please do come back with your next book. Uh, I was really, in, uh, really enjoyed reading it and glad to have a chance to talk with you about it in person. Thank you very much. All right. Goodbye.